Mort by Terry Pratchett. Read by Nigel Planer. This is the bright candle-lit room where the lifetimers are stored. Shelf upon shelf of them, squat hourglasses, one for every living person, pouring their fine sand from the future into the past. The accumulated hiss of the falling grains makes the room roar like the sea. This is the owner of the room, stalking through it with a preoccupied air. His name is Death, but not any Death. This is the death whose particular sphere of operations is, well, not a sphere at all, but the disc world, which is flat, and rides on the back of four giant elephants who stand on the shell of the enormous star turtle, Great Atuin, and which is bounded by a waterfall that cascades endlessly into space. Scientists have calculated that the chance of anything so patently absurd actually existing are millions to one. But magicians have calculated that million-to-one chances crop up nine times out of ten. Death clicks across the black-and-white tiled floor on toes of bone, muttering inside his cowl as his skeletal fingers count along the rows of busy hourglasses. Finally, he finds one that seems to satisfy him, lifts it carefully from its shelf and carries it across to the nearest candle. He holds it so that the light glints off it and stares at the little point of reflected brilliance. The steady gaze from those twinkling eye sockets encompasses the world turtle, sculling through the deeps of space, carapace scarred by comets and pitted by meteors. One day even great Artuin will die, death knows. Now that would be a challenge. But the focus of his gaze dives onwards, towards the blue-green magnificence of the disk itself, turning slowly under its tiny orbiting sun. Now it curves away towards the great mountain range called the Ramtops. The ramtops are full of deep valleys and unexpected crags, and considerably more geography than they know what to do with. They have their own peculiar weather, full of shrapnel rain and whiplash winds and permanent thunderstorms. Some people say it's all because the ramtops are the home of old wild magic. Mind you, some people will say anything. Death blinks, adjusts for depth of vision. Now he sees the grassy country on the turn-wise slopes of the mountains. Now he sees a particular hillside. Now he sees a field. Now he sees a boy running. Now he watches. Now, in a voice like lead slabs being dropped on granite, he says, Yes. There was no doubt that there was something magical in the soil of that hilly, broken area, which, because of the strange tint that it gave to the local flora, was known as the octarine grass country. For example, it was one of the few places on the disc where plants produced reannual varieties. Reannuals are plants that grow backwards in time. You sow the seed this year, and they grow last year. Mort's family specialised in distilling the wine from reannual grapes. These were very powerful and much sought after by fortune tellers, since of course they enabled them to see the future. The only snag was that you got the hangover the morning before and had to drink a lot to get over it. 
Reannual growers tended to be big, serious men, much given to introspection and close examination of the calendar. A farmer who neglects to sow ordinary seeds only loses the crop, whereas anyone who forgets to sow seeds of a crop that has already been harvested 12 months before risks disturbing the entire fabric of causality, not to mention acute embarrassment. It was also acutely embarrassing to Mort's family that the youngest son was not at all serious and had about the same talent for horticulture that you would find in a dead starfish. It wasn't that he was unhelpful, but he had the kind of vague, cheerful helpfulness that serious men soon learned to dread. There was something infectious, possibly even fatal, about it. He was tall, red-haired and freckled, with the sort of body that seems to be only marginally under its owner's control. It appeared to have been built out of knees. On this particular day, it was hurtling across the high fields, waving its hands and yelling. Mort's father and uncle watched it disconsolately from the stone wall. What I don't understand, said Father Lezek, is that the birds don't even fly away. I'd fly away if I saw it coming towards me. Ah, the human body's a wonderful thing. I mean, his legs go all over the place, but there's a fair turn of speed there. Mort reached the end of a furrow. An overfull wood pigeon lurched slowly out of his way. His heart's in the right place, mind, said Lezek carefully. Ah, course. Tis the rest of him that isn't. He's clean about the house. Doesn't eat much, said Lezek. No, I can see that. Lezek looked sideways at his brother, who was staring fixedly at the sky. I did hear you'd got a place going up at your farm, Hamish, he said. Ah, got an apprentice in, didn't I? Ah, said Lezek gloomily. When was that then? Yesterday, said his brother, lying with rattlesnake speed. All signed and sealed. Sorry. Look, I got nothing against young Mort. See, he's, he's as nice a boy as you could wish to meet. It's just that... I know, I know, said Lezek. He couldn't find his ass with both hands. They stared at the distant figure. It had fallen over. Some pigeons had waddled over to inspect it. He's not stupid, mind, said Hamish. Not what you'd call stupid. Oh, there's a brain there, all right, Lezek conceded. Sometimes he starts thinking so hard you has to hit him round the head to get his attention. His granny taught him to read, see? I reckon it overheated his mind. Mort had got up and tripped over his robe. You ought to set him to a trade, said Hamesh reflectively. The priesthood, maybe. Or wizardry. They do a lot of reading, wizards. They looked at each other. Into both their minds stole an inkling of what Mort might be capable of if he got his well-meaning hands on a book of magic. All right said Hamesh hurriedly. Something else, then. There must be lots of things he could turn his hand to. He starts thinking too much. That's the trouble, said Lezek. Look at him now. You don't think about how to scare birds. You just does it. A normal boy, I mean. Hamesh scratched his chin thoughtfully. It could be someone else's problem, he said. Lezek's expression did not alter, but there was a subtle change around his eyes. How do you mean? he said. There's the high ring fair at Sheep Ridge next week. You set him as apprentice, see, and his new master'll have the job of knocking him into shape. Tis the law. 
Get him indentured, and tis binding. Lezek looked across the field at his son, who was examining a rock. I wouldn't want anything to happen to him, mind, he said doubtfully. We're quite fond of him, his mother and me. You get used to people. It'd be for his own good, you'll see. Make a man of him. Mm. Well, there's plenty of raw material, sighed Lezek. Mort was getting interested in the rock. It had curly shells in it, relics of the early days of the world when the creator had made creatures out of stone. No one knew why. Mort was interested in lots of things. Why people's teeth fitted together so neatly, for example. He'd given that one a lot of thought. Then there was the puzzle of why the sun came out during the day instead of at night when the light would come in useful. He knew the standard explanation, which somehow didn't seem satisfying. In short, Mort was one of those people who are more dangerous than a bag full of rattlesnakes. He was determined to discover the underlying logic behind the universe, which was going to be hard because there wasn't one. The creator had a lot of remarkably good ideas when he put the world together, but making it understandable hadn't been one of them. Tragic heroes always moan when the gods take an interest in them, but it's the people the gods ignore who get the really tough deals. His father was yelling at him as usual. Mort threw the rock at a pigeon, which was almost too full to lurch out of the way, and wandered back across the field. And that was why Mort and his father walked down through the mountains into Sheepridge on Hogswatch Eve, with Mort's rather sparse possessions in a sack on the back of a donkey. The town wasn't much more than four sides to a cobbled square, lined with shops that provided all the service industry of the farming community. After five minutes, Mort came out of the tailors wearing a loose-fitting brown garment of imprecise function, which had been understandably unclaimed by a previous owner and had plenty of room for him to grow, on the assumption that he would grow into a nineteen-legged elephant. His father regarded him critically. Very nice, he said, for the money. It itches, said Mort. I think there's things in here with me. There's thousands of lads in the world be very thankful for a nice warm... Lezek paused and gave up. Mm, garment like that, my lad. I could share it with them, Mort said, hopefully. You've got to look smart, said Lezek severely. You've got to make an impression. Stand out in the crowd. There was no doubt about it. He would. They set out among the throng crowding the square, each listening to his own thoughts. Usually, Mort enjoyed visiting the town with its cosmopolitan atmosphere and strange dialects from villages as far away as five, even ten miles away, but this time he felt unpleasantly apprehensive, as if he could remember something that hadn't happened yet. The fair seemed to work like this. Men looking for work stood in ragged lines in the centre of the square. Many of them sported little symbols in their hats to tell the world the kind of work they were trained in. Shepherds wore a wisp of wool, carters a hank of horsehair, interior decorators a strip of rather interesting hessian wall covering, and so on. The boys seeking apprenticeships were clustered on the hub side of the square. You just go and stand there and someone comes and offers you an apprenticeship, said Lezek, his voice trimmed with uncertainty. If they like the look of you, that is. How do they do that? said Mort. Well, said Lezek, and paused. Hamesh hadn't explained about this bit. He drew on his limited knowledge of the marketplace, which was restricted to livestock sales, and ventured, I suppose they count your teeth and that, and make sure you don't wheeze, and your feet are all right. I shouldn't let on about the reading. It unsettles people. And then what? said Mort. Then you go and learn a trade, said Lezek. 
What trade in particular? Well, carpentry's a good one, Lezek hazarded. Or thievery. Someone's got to do it. Mort looked at his feet. He was a dutiful son when he remembered, and if being an apprentice was what was expected of him, then he was determined to be a good one. Carpentry didn't sound very promising, though. Wood had a stubborn life of its own, and a tendency to split. And official thieves were rare in the ramtops where people weren't rich enough to afford them. All right, he said eventually, I'll go and give it a try. But what happens if I don't get prenticed? Lezek scratched his head. I don't know, he said. I expect you just wait until the end of the fair. At midnight, I suppose. And now midnight approached. A light frost began to crisp the cobblestones. In the ornamental clock tower that overlooked the square, a couple of delicately carved little automatons whirred out of trapdoors in the clock face and struck the quarter hour. Fifteen minutes to midnight. Mort shivered, but the crimson fires of shame and stubbornness flared up inside him, hotter than the slopes of hell. He blew on his fingers for something to do and stared up at the freezing sky, trying to avoid the stares of the few stragglers among what remained of the fair. Most of the stallkeepers had packed up and gone. Even the hot meat pie man had stopped crying his wares and, with no regard for personal safety, was eating one. The last of Mort's fellow hopefuls had vanished hours ago. He was a wall-eyed young man with a stoop and a running nose, and Sheepridge's one licensed beggar had pronounced him to be ideal material. The lad on the other side of Mort had gone off to be a toy maker. One by one they'd trooped off, the masons, the farriers, the assassins, the mercers, coopers, hoodwinkers and ploughmen. In a few minutes it would be the new year, and a hundred boys would be starting out hopefully on their careers, new worthwhile lives of useful service rolling out in front of them. Mort wondered miserably why he hadn't been picked. He'd tried to look respectable, and had looked all prospective masters squarely in the eye to impress them with his excellent nature and extremely likeable qualities. This didn't seem to have the right effect. Would you like a hot meat pie? said his father. No. He's selling them cheap. No. Thank you. Oh. Lezek hesitated. I could ask the man if he wants an apprentice, he said helpfully. Very reliable, the catering trade. I don't think he does, said Mort. No, probably not, said Lezek. Bit of a one-man business, I expect. He's gone now, anyway. Tell you what, I'll save you a bit of mine. I don't actually feel very hungry, Dad. There's hardly any gristle. No, but thanks all the same. Oh. Lezek deflated a little. He danced about a bit to stamp some life back into his feet and whistled a few tuneless bars between his teeth. He felt he ought to say something, to offer some kind of advice, to point out that life had its ups and downs, to put his arm around his son's shoulder and talk expansively about the problems of growing up, to indicate, in short, that the world is a funny old place where one should never, metaphorically speaking, be so proud as to turn down the offer of a perfectly good hot meat pie. They were alone now. The frost, the last one of the year, tightened its grip on the stones. High in the tower above them, a cogged wheel went clonk, tripped a lever, released a ratchet and let a heavy lead weight drop down. There was a dreadful metallic wheezing noise and the trapdoors in the clock face slid open, releasing the clockwork men. 
Swinging their hammers jerkily, as if they were afflicted with robotic arthritis, they began to ring in the new day. Well, that's it, said Lezek, hopefully. They'd have to find somewhere to sleep. Hogswatch night was no time to be walking in the mountains. Perhaps there was a stable somewhere. It's not midnight until the last stroke, said Mort distantly. Lezek shrugged. The sheer strength of Mort's obstinacy was defeating him. All right, he said. We'll wait then. And then they heard the clip-clop of hooves, which boomed rather more loudly around the chilly square than common acoustics should really allow. In fact, clip-clop was an astonishingly inaccurate word for the kind of noise which rattled around Mort's head. Clip-clop suggested a rather jolly little pony, quite possibly wearing a straw hat with holes cut out for its ears. An edge to this sound made it very clear that straw hats weren't an option. The horse entered the square by the hub road, steam curling off its huge damp white flanks and sparks striking up from the cobbles beneath it. It trotted proudly like a war charger. It was definitely not wearing a straw hat. The tall figure on its back was wrapped up against the cold. When the horse reached the centre of the square, the rider dismounted slowly and fumbled with something behind the saddle. Eventually he, or she, produced a nosebag, fastened it over the horse's ears and gave it a friendly pat on the neck. The air took on a thick, greasy feel and the deep shadows around Mort became edged with blue and purple rainbows. The rider strode towards him, black cloak billowing and feet making little clicking sounds on the cobbles. They were the only noises. Silence clamped down on the square like great drifts of cotton wool. The impressive effect was rather spoilt by a patch of ice. Oh, bugger! It wasn't exactly a voice. The words were there all right, but they arrived in Mort's head without bothering to pass through his ears. He rushed forward to help the fallen figure and found himself grabbing hold of a hand that was nothing more than polished bone, smooth and rather yellowed like an old billiard ball. The figure's hood fell back and a naked skull turned its empty eye sockets towards him. Not quite empty, though. Deep within them, as though they were windows looking across the gulfs of space, were two tiny blue stars. It occurred to Mort that he ought to feel horrified, so he was slightly shocked to find that he wasn't. It was a skeleton sitting in front of him, rubbing its knees and grumbling. But it was a live one. Curiously impressive, but not for some strange reason very frightening. Thank you, boy, said the skull. What is your name? Er, uh, said Mort. Mortimer, sir. They call me Mort. What a coincidence, said the skull. Help me up, please. The figure rose unsteadily, brushing itself down. Now Mort could see that there was a heavy belt around its waist, from which was slung a white-handled sword. I hope you're not hurt, sir, he said politely. The skull grinned. Of course, Mort thought, it hasn't much of a choice. No harm done, I am sure. The skull looked around and seemed to see Lezek, who appeared to be frozen to the spot for the first time. Mort thought an explanation was called for. My father, he said, trying to move protectively in front of the Exhibit A without causing any offence. Excuse me, sir, but are you deaf? Correct. Full marks for observation, that boy. Mort swallowed. 
"'My father is a good man,' he said. He thought for a while and added, "'Quite good. "'I'd rather you left him alone if it's all the same to you. "'I don't know what you have done to him, "'but I'd like you to stop it. "'No offence, men.' Death stepped back, his skull on one side. "'I have merely put us outside time for a moment,' he said. "'He will see and hear nothing that disturbs him. "'No, boy, it was you I came for.' "'Me?' "'You are here seeking employment?' Light dawned on Mort. "'You were looking for an apprentice?' he said. The eye sockets turned towards him, their actinic pinpoints flaring. "'Of course!' Death waved a bony hand. There was a wash of purple light, a sort of visible pop, and Lezek unfroze. Above his head the clockwork automatons got on with the job of proclaiming midnight, as time was allowed to come creeping back. Lezek blinked. "'Didn't see you there for a minute,' he said. "'Sorry. Mine must have been elsewhere.' "'I was offering your boy a position,' said Death. "'I trust that meets with your approval.' Uh, "'What was your job again?' said Lezek, talking to a black-robed skeleton without showing even a flicker of surprise. "'I usher souls into the next world,' said Death. "'Ah,' said Lezek, "'of course.' Uh, sorry. Should have guessed from the clothes. Very uh, necessary work. Very steady. Established business? I have been going for some time, yes, said Death. Good, good. Never really thought of it as a job for Mort, you know, but it's good work, good work. Always very reliable. What's your name? Death. Dad, said Mort urgently. Can't say I recognise the firm, said Lezek. Where are you based exactly? From the uttermost depths of the sea to the heights where even the eagle may not go, said Death. That's fair enough, nodded Lezek. Well, I... Dad, said Mort, pulling at his father's coat. Death laid a hand on Mort's shoulder. What your father sees and hears is not what you see and hear, he said. Do not worry him. Do you think he would want to see me in the flesh, as it were? "'You're death,' said Mort. "'You go round killing people.' "'I kill?' said Death, obviously offended. "'Certainly not. "'People get killed, but that's their business. "'I just take over from then on. "'After all, it'd be a bloody stupid world "'if people got killed without dying, wouldn't it?' "'Well, yes,' said Mort, doubtfully. "'Mort had never heard the word intrigued.' It was not in regular use in the family vocabulary, but a spark in his soul told him that there was something weird and fascinating and not entirely horrible, and that if he let this moment go he'd spend the rest of his life regretting it, and he remembered the humiliations of the day and the long walk back home. Er, uh, he began, I don't have to die to get the job, do I? Being dead is not compulsory. And... The bones? Not if you don't want to. Mort breathed out again. It had been starting to prey on his mind. If father says it's all right, he said. He looked at Lezek, who was scratching his beard. How do you feel about this, Mort? He said, with the brittle brightness of a fever victim. It's not everyone's idea of an occupation. It's not what I had in mind, I admit, but they do say that undertaking is an honoured profession. 
It's your choice. Undertaking, said Mort. Death nodded and raised his finger to his lips in a conspiratorial gesture. It's interesting, said Mort slowly. I think I'd like to try it. Where did you say your business was? said Lezek. Is it far? No further than the thickness of a shadow, said Death. Where the first primal cell was, there was I also. Where man is, there am I. When the last life crawls under the freezing stars, there will I be. Ah, said Lezek. You get about a bit, then. He looked puzzled, like a man struggling to remember something important, and then obviously gave up. Death patted him on the shoulder in a friendly fashion and turned to Mort. Have you any possessions, boy? Yes, said Mort, and then remembered, only I think I left them in the shop. Dad, we left the sack in the clothes shop. It'll be shut, said Lezek. Shops don't open on Hogswatch Day. You'll have to go back the day after tomorrow. Well, tomorrow, now. It is of little account, said Death. We will leave now. No doubt I will have business here soon enough. I hope you'll be able to drop in and see us soon, said Lezek. He seemed to be struggling with his thoughts. I'm not sure that'll be a good idea, said Mort. Well, goodbye, lad, said Lezek. You're to do what you're told, you understand? And, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, do you have a son? Death looked rather taken aback. No, he said. I have no sons. I'll just have a last word with my boy, if you've no objection. Then I will go and see to the horse, said Death, with more than normal tact. Lezek put his arm around his son's shoulders, with some difficulty in view of their difference in height, and gently propelled him across the square. Mort, you know your Uncle Hamesh told me about this prenticing business, he whispered. Yes? Well, he told me something else, the old man confided. He said it's not unknown for an apprentice to inherit his master's business. What do you think of that, then? Um, I'm not sure, said Mort. It's worth thinking about, said Lezek. I am thinking about it, father. Many a young lad has started out that way, Hamish said. He makes himself useful, earns his master's confidence, and, well, if there's any daughters in the house... Did Mr. Um, Mr. Uh, say anything about daughters? M Mr. Who? said Mort. Mr. Uh, your new master. Oh, him, no. No, I don't think so, said Mort slowly. I don't think he's the marrying type. Many a keen young man owes his advancement to his nuptials, said Lezek. He does? Mort. I don't think you're really listening. What? Lezek came to a halt on the frosty cobbles and spun the boy round to face him. You're really going to have to do better than this, he said. Don't you understand, boy? If you're going to amount to anything in this world, then you've got to listen. I'm your father telling you these things. Mort looked down at his father's face. He wanted to say a lot of things. He wanted to say how much he loved him, how worried he was. He wanted to ask what his father really thought he'd just seen and heard. He wanted to say that he felt as though he stepped on a molehill and found that it was really a volcano. He wanted to ask what nuptials meant. What he actually said was, Yes, thank you. I'd better be going. I'll try and write you a letter. There's bound to be someone passing who can read it to us, said Lezek. 
Goodbye, Mort. He blew his nose. Goodbye, Dad. I'll come back to visit, said Mort. Death coughed, tactfully, although it sounded like the pistol crack of an ancient beam full of Death Watch beetle. We had better be going, he said. Hop up, Mort. As Mort scrambled behind the ornate silver saddle, Death leaned down and shook Lezek's hand. Thank you, he said. He's a good lad at heart, said Lezek. A bit dreamy, that's all. I suppose we were all young once. Death considered this. No, he said. I don't think so. He gathered up the reins and turned the horse towards the rim road. From his perch behind the black-robed figure, Mort waved desperately. Lezek waved back. Then, as the horse and its two riders disappeared from view, he lowered his hand and looked at it. The handshake. It had felt strange, but somehow he couldn't remember exactly why. Mort listened to the clatter of stone under the horse's hooves, then there was the soft thud of packed earth as they reached the road, and then there was nothing at all. He looked down and saw the landscape spread out below him, the night etched with moonlight silver. If he fell off, the only thing he'd hit was air. He redoubled his grip on the saddle. Then Death said, Are you hungry, boy? Yes, sir. The words came straight from his stomach without the intervention of his brain. Death nodded and reined in the horse. It stood on the air, the great circular panorama of the disc glittering below it. Here and there a city was an orange glow. In the warm seas nearer the rim there was a hint of phosphorescence. In some of the deep valleys the trapped daylight of the disc, which is slow and slightly heavy, was evaporating like silver steam. Practically anything can go faster than disc light, which is lazy and tame, unlike ordinary light. The only thing known to go faster than ordinary light is monarchy, according to the philosopher Li Tin Weedle. He reasoned like this. You can't have more than one king, and tradition demands that there is no gap between kings, so when a king dies, the succession must therefore pass to the heir instantaneously. Presumably, he said, there must be some elementary particles, kingons, or possibly quions, that do this job, but of course succession sometimes fails if, in mid-flight, they strike an antiparticle or republicon. His ambitious plans to use his discovery to send messages involving the careful torturing of a small king in order to modulate the signal were never fully expounded because at that point the bar closed. But it was outshone by the glow that rose towards the stars from the rim itself. Vast streamers of light shimmered and glittered across the night. Great golden walls surrounded the world. It's beautiful, said Mort softly. What is it? The sun is under the disk, said Death. Is it like this every night? Every night, said Death. Nature's like that. Doesn't anyone know? Me, you, the gods. Good, is it? Gosh. Death leaned over the saddle and looked down at the kingdoms of the world. I don't know about you, he said, but I could murder a curry. Although it was well after midnight, the twin city of Ankh-Morpork was roaring with life. Mort had thought Sheepridge looked busy, but compared to the turmoil of the street around him, the town was, well, a morgue. Poets have tried to describe Ankh-Morpork. They have failed. 
Perhaps it's the sheer zestful vitality of the place, or maybe it's just that the city with a million inhabitants and no sewers is rather robust for poets who prefer daffodils, and no wonder. So let's just say that Ankh-Morpork Pork is as full of life as an old cheese on a hot day, as loud as a curse in a cathedral, as bright as an oil slick, as colourful as a bruise, and as full of activity, industry, bustle, and sheer exuberant busyness as a dead dog on a termite mound. There were temples, their doors wide open, filling the streets with the sound of gongs, cymbals, and in the case of some of the more conservative fundamentalist religions, the brief screams of the victims. There were shops whose strange wares spilled out onto the pavement. There seemed to be rather a lot of friendly young ladies who couldn't afford many clothes. There were flares and jugglers and assorted sellers of instant transcendence. And death stalked through it all. Mort had half expected him to pass through the crowds like smoke, but it wasn't like that at all. The simple truth was that wherever death walked, people just drifted out of the way. It didn't work like that for Mort. The crowds that gently parted for his new master closed again just in time to get in his way. His toes got trodden on, his ribs were bruised, people kept trying to sell him unpleasant spices and suggestively shaped vegetables, and a rather elderly lady said, against all the evidence, that he looked a well-set-up young lad who would like a nice time. He thanked her very much and said that he hoped he was having a nice time already. Death reached the street corner, the light from the flares raising brilliant highlights on the polished dome of his skull, and sniffed the air. A drunk staggered up, and without quite realising why, made a slight detour in his erratic passage for no visible reason. "'This is the city, boy,' said Death. "'What do you think?' "'It's very big,' said Mort, uncertainly. "'I mean, why does everyone want to live all squeezed together like this?' Death shrugged. "'I like it,' he said. "'It's full of life.' "'Sir?' "'Yes?' What's a curry? The blue fires flared deep in the eyes of death. Have you ever bitten a red-hot ice cube? No, sir, said Mort. Curries like that. Sir? Yes? Mort swallowed hard. Excuse me, sir, but my dad said if I don't understand I was to ask questions, sir. Very commendable, said death. He set off down a side street, the crowds parting in front of him like random molecules. Well, sir, I can't help noticing. The point is, well, the plain fact of it is, sir, is... Out with it, boy. How can you eat things, sir? Death pulled up short so that Mort walked into him. When the boy started to speak, he waved him into silence. He appeared to be listening to something. There are times, you know he said, half to himself. When I get really upset. He turned on one heel and set off down an alleyway at high speed, his cloak flying out behind him. The alley wound between dark walls and sleeping buildings, not so much a thoroughfare as a meandering gap. Death stopped by a decrepit water butt and plunged his arm in at full length, bringing out a small sack with a brick tied to it. He drew his sword, a line of flickering blue fire in the darkness, and sliced through the string. I get very angry indeed, he said. He upended the sack and Mort watched the pathetic scraps of sodden fur slide out to lie in their spreading puddle on the cobbles. Death reached out with his white fingers and stroked them gently. After a while, something like grey smoke curled up from the kittens and formed three small cat-shaped clouds in the air. 
They billowed occasionally, unsure of their shape, and blinked at Mort with puzzled grey eyes. When he tried to touch one, his hand went straight through it and tingled. You don't see people at their best in this job, said Death. He blew on a kitten, sending it gently tumbling. Its meow of complaint sounded as though it had come from a long way away via a tin tube. They're souls, aren't they? said Mort. What do people look like? People-shaped, said Death. It's basically all down to the characteristic morphogenetic field. He sighed like the swish of a shroud, picked the kittens out of the air, and carefully stowed them away somewhere in the dark recesses of his robe. He stood up. Curry time, he said. It was crowded in the curry gardens on the corner of God Street and Blood Alley, but only with the cream of society, at least with those people who are found floating on the top, and who therefore it's wisest to call the cream. Fragrant bushes planted among the tables nearly concealed the basic smell of the city itself, which has been likened to the nasal equivalent of a foghorn. Mort ate ravenously, but curbed his curiosity and didn't watch to see how death could possibly eat anything. The food was there to start with and wasn't there later, so presumably something must have happened in between. Mort got the feeling that death wasn't really used to all this, but was doing it to put him at his ease, like an elderly bachelor uncle who has been landed with his nephew for a holiday and is terrified of getting it wrong. The other diners didn't take much notice, even when death leaned back and lit a rather fine pipe. Someone with smoke curling out of their eye sockets takes some ignoring, but everyone managed it. Is it magic? said Mort. What do you think? said death. Am I really here, boy? Yes, said Mort slowly. I, I've watched people. They look at you, but they don't see you, I think. You do something to their minds. Death shook his head. They do it all themselves, he said. There's no magic. People can't see me. They simply won't allow themselves to do it. Until it's time, of course. Wizards can see me, and cats. But your average human, no, never. He blew a smoke ring at the sky and added, Strange but true. Mort watched the smoke ring wobble into the sky and drift away towards the river. I can see you, he said. That's different. The Clatchian waiter arrived with the bill and placed it in front of death. The man was squat and brown with a hairstyle like a coconut gone nova, and his round face creased into a puzzled frown when death nodded politely to him. He shook his head like someone trying to dislodge soap from his ears and walked away. Death reached into the depths of his robe and brought out a large leather bag full of assorted copper coinage, most of it blue and green with age. He inspected the bill carefully. Then he counted out a dozen coins. Come, he said, standing up. We must go. Mort trotted along behind him as he stalked out of the garden and into the street, which was still fairly busy even though there were the first suggestions of dawn on the horizon. What are we going to do now? Buy you some new clothes. These were new today. Yesterday, I mean. Really? Father said the shop was famous for its budget clothing, said Mort, running to keep up. It certainly adds a new terror to poverty. They turned into a wider street leading into a more affluent part of the city. The torches were closer together and the middens further apart. There were no stalls and alley corner traders here, but proper buildings with signs hanging outside. They weren't mere shops, they were emporia. They had purveyors in them, and chairs, and spittoons, 
Most of them were open even at this time of night, because the average Archean trader can't sleep for thinking of the money he's not making. "'Doesn't anyone ever go to bed around here?' said Mort. "'This is a city,' said Death, and pushed open the door of a clothing store. When they came out twenty minutes later, Mort was wearing a neatly fitting black robe with faint silver embroidery, and the shopkeeper was looking at a handful of antique copper coins and wondering precisely how he came to have them. "'How did you get all those coins?' asked Mort. "'In pairs.' An all-night barber sheared Mort's hair into the latest fashion among the city's young bloods, while Death relaxed in the next chair, humming to himself. Much to his surprise, he felt in a good humour. In fact, after a while, he pushed his hood back and glanced up at the barber's apprentice, who tied a towel round his neck in that unseeing, hypnotised way that Mort was coming to recognise, and said, "'A splash of toilet water and a polish, my good man!' An elderly wizard, having a beard trim on the other side, stiffened when he heard those sombre leaden tones and swung round. He blanched and muttered a few protective incantations, after death turned very slowly for maximum effect and treated him to a grin. A few minutes later, feeling rather self-conscious and chilly around the ears, Mort was heading back towards the stables where death had lodged his horse. He tried an experimental swagger. He felt his new suit and haircut rather demanded it. It didn't quite work. Mort awoke. He lay looking at the ceiling while his memory did a fast rewind and the events of the previous day crystallised in his mind like little ice cubes. He couldn't have met death. He couldn't have eaten a meal with a skeleton with glowing blue eyes. It had to be a weird dream. He couldn't have ridden pillion on a white horse that entered up into the sky and then went, where? The answer flowed into his mind with all the inevitability of a tax demand. Here. His searching hands reached up to his cropped hair and down to the sheets of some smooth, slippery material. It was much finer than the wool he was used to at home, which was coarse and always smelled of sheep. It felt like warm, dry ice. He swung out of the bed hastily and stared around the room. First of all, it was large. Larger than the entire house back home, and dry. Dry as old tombs under ancient deserts. The air tasted as though it had been cooked for hours and then allowed to cool. The carpet under his feet was deep enough to hide a tribe of pygmies and crackled electrically as he padded through it, and everything had been designed in shades of purple and black. He looked down at his own body, which was wearing a long white nightshirt. His clothes had been neatly folded on a chair by the bed. The chair, he couldn't help noticing, was delicately carved with a skull and bones motif. Mort sat down on the edge of the bed and began to dress, his mind racing. He eased open the heavy oak door and felt oddly disappointed when it failed to creak ominously. There was a bare wooden corridor outside with big yellow candles set in holders on the far wall. Mort crept out and sidled along the boards until he reached a staircase. He negotiated that successfully without anything ghastly happening, arriving in what looked like an entrance hall full of doors. There were a lot of funereal drapes here and a grandfather clock with a tick like the heartbeat of a mountain. There was an umbrella stand beside it. It had a scythe in it. Mort looked around at the doors. They looked important. Their arches were carved in the now familiar bones motif. He went to try the nearest one, and a voice behind him said, You mustn't go in there, boy. It took him a moment to realise that this wasn't a voice in his head, but real human words that had been formed by a mouth and transferred to his ears by a convenient system of air compression, as nature intended. Nature had gone to a lot of trouble for six words with a slightly petulant tone to them. He turned round. There was a girl there, about his own height, 
and perhaps a few years older than him. She had silver hair and eyes with a pearly sheen to them, and the kind of interesting but impractical long dress that tends to be worn by tragic heroines who clasp single roses to their bosom while gazing soulfully at the moon. Mort had never heard the phrase pre-Raphaelite, which was a pity because it would have been almost the right description. However, such girls tend to be on the translucent, consumptive side, whereas this one had a slight suggestion of too many chocolates. She stared at him with her head on one side and one foot tapping irritably on the floor. Then she reached out quickly and pinched him sharply on the arm. Ow! Mmm, so you're really real, she said. What's your name, boy? Mortimer. They call me Mort, he said, rubbing his elbow. What did you do that for? I shall call you Boy, she said, and I don't really have to explain myself, you understand, but if you must know, I thought you were dead. You look dead. Mort said nothing. Lost your tongue? Mort was, in fact, counting to ten. I'm not dead, he said eventually. At least I don't think so. It's a little hard to tell. Who are you? You may call me Miss Isabel, she said haughtily. Father told me you must have something to eat. Follow me. She swept away towards one of the other doors. Mort trailed behind her at just the right distance to have it swing back and hit his other elbow. There was a kitchen on the other side of the door, long, low and warm, with copper pans hanging from the ceiling and a vast black iron stove occupying the whole of one long wall. An old man was standing in front of it, frying eggs and bacon and whistling between his teeth. The smell attracted Mort's taste buds from across the room, hinting that if they got together they could really enjoy themselves. He found himself moving forward without even consulting his legs. Albert, snapped Isabel. Another one for breakfast? The man turned his head slowly and nodded at her without saying a word. She turned back to Mort. I must say, she said, that with the whole disc to choose from, I should think Father could have done rather better than you. I suppose you'll just have to do. She swept out of the room, slamming the door behind her. Have to do what? said Mort. To no one in particular. The room was silent, except for the sizzle of the frying pan and the crumbling of coals in the molten heart of the stove. Mort saw that it had the words, The Little Moloch, patented, embossed on its oven door. The cook didn't seem to notice him, so Mort pulled up a chair and sat down at the white scrubbed table. Mushrooms? said the old man without looking round. Hmm? What? I said... Do you want mushrooms? Oh, sorry. No, thank you. Right you are, young sir. He turned around and set out for the table. Even after he got used to it, Mort always held his breath when he watched Albert walking. Death's manservant was one of those stick-thin, raw-nosed old men who always look as though they are wearing gloves with the fingers cut out, even when they're not, and his walking involved a complicated sequence of movements. Albert leaned forward and his left arm started to swing, slowly at first, but soon evolving into a wild, jerking movement that finally and suddenly, at about the time when a watcher would have expected the arm to fly off at the elbow, transferred itself down the length of his body to his legs and propelled him forward like a high-speed stilt-walker. The frying pan followed a series of intricate curves in the air and was brought to a halt just over Mort's plate. Albert did indeed have exactly the right type of half-moon spectacles to peer over the top of. There could be some porridge to follow, he said, and winked, apparently to include Mort in the world porridge conspiracy. Excuse me, said Mort, 
But where am I exactly? Don't you know? This is the house of death, lad. He brought you here last night. I sort of remember, only... Hmm? Well, the, uh, the bacon and eggs, said Mort vaguely. It doesn't seem, well, appropriate. I've got some black pudding somewhere, said Albert. No, I mean, Mort hesitated. It's just that I can't see him sitting down to a couple of rashers and a fried slice. Albert grinned. Oh, he doesn't, lad. Not as a regular thing, no. Very easy to cater for, the master. I just cook for me and... He paused. The young lady, of course. Mort nodded. Your daughter, he said. Mine, <laughs> said Albert. You're wrong there. She's his. Mort stared down at his fried eggs. They stared back from their lake of fat. Albert had heard of nutritional values and didn't hold with them. Are we talking about the same person, he said at last. Tall, wears black. He's a bit, well, skinny. Adopted, said Albert kindly. It's rather a long story. A bell jangled by his head, which will have to wait. He wants to see you in his study. I should run along if I were you. He doesn't like to be kept waiting. Understandable, really. Up the steps and first on the left. You can't miss it. It's got skulls and bones around the door, said Mort, pushing back his chair. They all have, most of them, sighed Albert. It's only his fancy. He doesn't mean anything by it. Leaving his breakfast to congeal, Mort hurried up the steps along the corridor and paused in front of the first door. He raised his hand to knock. Enter! The handle turned of its own accord. The door swung inward. Death was seated behind a desk, peering intently into a vast leather book, almost bigger than the desk itself. He looked up as Mort came in, keeping one calcareous finger marking his place, and grinned. There wasn't much of an alternative. Ah, he said, and then paused. Then he scratched his chin with a noise like a fingernail being pulled across a comb. Who are you, boy? Mort, sir, said Mort. Your apprentice, you remember? Death stared at him for some time, then the pinpoint blue eyes turned back at the book. Oh, yes, he said. Mort. Well, boy, do you sincerely wish to learn the uttermost secrets of time and space? Yes, sir. I think so, sir. Good. The stables are around the back. The shovel hangs just inside the door. He looked down. He looked up. Mort hadn't moved. Is it by any chance possible that you fail to understand me? Not fully, sir, said Mort. Dung, boy, dung. Albert has a compost heap in the garden. I imagine there's a wheelbarrow somewhere on the premises. Get on with it. Mort nodded mournfully. Yes, sir. I see, sir. Sir? Yes? Sir, I don't see what this has to do with the secrets of time and space. Death did not look up from his book. That, he said, is because you are here to learn. 
It is a fact that although the death of the Discworld is in his own words an anthropomorphic personification, he long ago gave up using the traditional skeletal horses because of the bother of having to stop all the time to wire bits back on. Now his horses were always flesh-and-blood beasts from the finest stock. And, Mort learned, very well fed. Some jobs offer increments. This one offered, well, quite the reverse. But at least it was in the warm and fairly easy to get the hang of. After a while, he got into the rhythm of it and started playing the private little quantity-surveying game that everyone plays in these circumstances. Let's see, he thought, I've done nearly a quarter, let's call it a third, so when I've done that corner by the hay rack, it'll be more than half, call it five-eighths, which means three more wheelbarrow loads. It doesn't prove anything very much except that the awesome splendour of the universe is much easier to deal with if you think of it as a series of small chunks. The horse watched him from its stall, occasionally trying to eat his hair in a friendly sort of way. After a while, he became aware that someone else was watching him. The girl, Isabel, was leaning on the half-door, her chin in her hand. "'Are you a servant?' she said. Mort straightened up. "'No,' he said. "'I'm an apprentice.' "'That's silly. Albert said you can't be an apprentice.' Mort concentrated on hefting a shovelful into the wheelbarrow. Two more shovelfuls, call it three, if it's well pressed down, and that means four more barrows, all right, call it five, before I've done halfway to the... He says, said Isabel in a loud voice, that apprentices become masters and you can't have more than one death, so you're just a servant and you have to do what I say. And then eight more barrows means it's all done, all the way to the door, which is nearly two-thirds of the whole thing, which means... Did you hear what I said, boy? Mort nodded and then it'll be fourteen more barrows, only call it fifteen, because I haven't swept up properly in the corner, and... Have you lost your tongue? Mort, said Mort mildly. She looked at him furiously. What? My name is Mort, said Mort. Or Mortimer. Most people call me Mort. Did you want to talk to me about something? She was speechless for a moment, staring from his face to the shovel and back again. Only I've been told to get on with this, said Mort. She exploded. Why are you here? Why did father bring you here? He hired me at the hiring fair, said Mort. All the boys got hired, and me. And you wanted to be hired, she snapped. He's death, you know, the Grim Reaper. He's very important. He's not something you become. He's something you are. Mort gestured vaguely at the wheelbarrow. I expect it'll turn out for the best, he said. My father always says things generally do. He picked up the shovel and turned away, and grinned at the horse's backside as he heard Isabel snort and walk away. Mort worked steadily through the sixteenths, eighths, quarters and thirds, wheeling the barrow out through the yard to the heap by the apple tree. Death's garden was big, neat and well tended. It was also very, very black. The grass was black, the flowers were black. Black apples gleamed among the black leaves of a black apple tree. Even the air looked inky. After a while, Mort thought he could see... No, he couldn't possibly imagine he could see different colours of black. That's to say, not simply very dark tones of red and green and whatever, but real shades of black. A whole spectrum of colours, all different and all, well, black. He tipped out the last load, put the barrow away and went back to the house. Enter. Death was standing behind a lectern, poring over a map. He looked at Mort as if he wasn't entirely there. 
You haven't heard of the Bay of Manta, have you? he said. No, sir, said Mort. Famous shipwreck there. Was there? There will be, said Death, if I can find the damn place. Mort walked around the lectern and peered at the map. You're gonna sink the ship, he said. Death looked horrified. Certainly not. There will be a combination of bad seamanship, shallow water, and a contrary wind. Oh, that's horrible, said Mort. Will there be many drowned? That's up to fate, said Death, turning to the bookcase behind him and pulling out a heavy gazetteer. There's nothing I can do about it. What is that smell? Me, said Mort simply. Ah, the stables. Death paused, his hand on the spine of the book. And why do you think I directed you to the stables? Think carefully now. Mort hesitated. He had been thinking carefully, in between counting wheelbarrows. He'd wondered if it had been to coordinate his hand and eye, or to teach him the habit of obedience, or bring home to him the importance, on the human scale, of small tasks, or make him realise that even great men must start at the bottom. None of these explanations seemed exactly right. I think, he began. Yes? Well, I think it was because you were up to your knees in horse shit, to tell you the truth. Death looked at him for a long time. Mort shifted uneasily from one foot to the other. Absolutely correct, snapped Death. Clarity of thought, realistic approach, very important in a job like ours. Yes, sir. Sir? Hmm? Death was struggling with the index. People die all the time, sir, don't they? Millions. You must be very busy, but... Death gave Mort the look he was coming to be familiar with. It started off as blank surprise, flickered briefly towards annoyance, called in for a drink at recognition, and settled finally on vague forbearance. But? I'd have thought you'd have been, well, out and about a bit more, you know, stalking the streets. My granny's almanac's got a picture of you with a scythe and stuff. I see. I'm afraid it is hard to explain unless you know about point incarnation and node focusing. I don't expect you do. I don't think I do. Generally, I'm only expected to make an actual appearance on special occasions. Like a king, I suppose, said Mort. I mean, a king is reigning even when he's doing something else, or asleep even. Is that it, sir? It'll do, said Death, rolling up the maps. And now, boy, if you've finished the stable, you can go and see if Albert has any jobs he wants doing. If you like, you can come out on the round with me this evening. Mort nodded. Death went back to his big leather book, took up a pen, stared at it for a moment, and then looked up at Mort with his skull on one side. Have you met my daughter? he said. Er, uh, yes, sir, said Mort, his hand on the doorknob. She is a very pleasant girl, said Death but I think she quite likes having someone of her own age around to talk to. Sir? And, of course, one day all this will belong to her. Something like a small blue supernova flared for a moment in the depths of his eye sockets. It dawned on Mort that, with some embarrassment and complete lack of expertise, death was trying to wink. In a landscape that owed nothing to time and space, which appeared on no map, which existed only in those far reaches of the multiplexed cosmos, known to the few astrophysicists who have taken really bad acid, Mort spent the afternoon helping Albert plant out broccoli.
It was black, tinted with purple. He tries, see, said Albert, flourishing the dibber. It's just that when it comes to colour, he hasn't got much imagination. I'm not sure I understand all this, said Mort. Did you say he made all this? Beyond the garden wall, the ground dropped towards a deep valley and then rose into dark moorland that marched all the way to distant mountains, jagged as cat's teeth. Yeah, said Albert. Mind what you're doing with that watering can. What was here before? I don't know, said Albert, starting a fresh row. Firmament, I suppose. That's the fancy name for raw nothing. It's not a very good job of work, to tell the truth. I mean, the garden's okay, but the mountains are downright shoddy. They're all fuzzy when you get up close. I went and had a look once. Mort squinted hard at the trees nearest him. They seemed commendably solid. What'd he do it all for? he said. Albert grunted. Do you know what happens to lads who ask too many questions? Mort thought for a moment. No, he said eventually. What? There was silence. Then Albert straightened up and said, Damned if I know. Probably they get answers and serve them right. He said I could go out with him tonight, said Mort. You're a lucky boy then, aren't you? said Albert vaguely, heading back for the cottage. Did he really make all this? said Mort, tagging along after him. Yes. Why? I suppose he wanted somewhere where he could feel at home. Are you dead, Albert? Me? Do I look dead? The old man snorted when Mort started to give him a slow, critical look. And you can stop that. I'm as alive as you are, probably more. Sorry. Right. Albert pushed open the back door and turned to regard Mort as kindly as he could manage. It's best not to ask all these questions, he said. It upsets people. Now, how about a nice fry-up? End of CD 1